They told us when to get down, they shot me five times. Okay, we'll get them rolling, Melissa. Just hang on, take a deep breath. On the morning of Saturday, February 10th, 1990, emergency dispatchers in Las Cruces, New Mexico, received a call from the bowling alley. How many people are hurt? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven people had been shot at Las Cruces Bowl. You didn't ever expect something like that to happen here. Four people, a teen girl, a father, and his two young children were killed, shot multiple times at point-blank range. Who shoots a two-and-a-half-year-old child behind the head? and walks away. 30 years later, the case is one of America's largest unsolved mass shootings. Do they really have the case open? That's all I want to know. The Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre in this episode of Borderland Crimes. I'm taking this podcast across state lines to Las Cruces, New Mexico. It's a 45-minute drive north of El Paso on Interstate 10. I wanted to focus on a tragic case that unfolded at Las Cruces Bowl 30 years ago and that still haunts this community. Even though Las Cruces is the second largest city in New Mexico next to Albuquerque, it's a small community. It had a population of roughly 62,000 people in 1990. At the time, there were two high schools and a blossoming college culture with New Mexico State University. The bowling alley was one of the town's hotspots. On the morning of February 10th, the cook at Las Cruces Bowl, Ida Urguin, was preparing for a big group that had reserved space at the bowling alley. Stephanie opened up at 8 o'clock. Stephanie, in this case, is Stephanie Sinak, the manager of the bowling alley and the owner's daughter. And I was getting everything out, uh, like the beans and you know, preparing. You no, know, I was cutting the lettuce, and I felt something on my side. And I looked down, it was a gun. He had a gun on me. He said, this is a holdup. He said, come with me. I'll never forget those words. They were so scary. And so I went with him, and it was the longest walk from the kitchen to the office. When Ida gets to the office, she sees Stephanie, along with Stephanie's 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Repass, and Melissa's 13-year-old friend, Amy Hauser. The girls had shown up to work at the bowling alley daycare. Ida also sees another gunman. They wanted money. They said, where was the safe? Open the safe. And so Stephanie and Melissa were getting the money. Well, Stephanie was getting the money from the safe and giving it to Melissa, and Melissa would put it in the suitcase. The whole time, Ida is looking at the robbers. This guy looked like a, a dark complexion. Um, I would have to say uh, like Cubano. I'll get more into the robber's description later in this podcast. But as the men prepare to make off with thousands of dollars from the safe, 
Bowling Alley employee Stephen Teran arrives with his daughters, two-year-old Valerie Teran and six-year-old Paula Ulguin. Paula is not related to Ida. Steve had taken his daughters to work with him because he couldn't find a babysitter, so he planned on dropping them off at the Bowling Alley daycare. They all walked into the office and startled the robbers. Ida recalls what she remembers to the best of her recollection. I heard the commotion when Steve walked in with the girls. I heard a lot of commotion, like a lot of banging and and shooting and and banging and wow, screams and crying and oh, I knew what was happening. That's when all hell breaks loose. And then when they started shooting, um, I was here, Amy was in front of me and I thought that blood splattered on me from Amy because I started shooting. And, and I go, oh, it was just her blood. But no, I actually got shot. I had gotten shot right there. At this point in our interview, she starts rubbing the front of her upper right arm. And it was hot. The blood was really hot. And then they started shooting again and I fell back to the computer. And so I was trying to get up. And they go, wow, wonder what threw me back there. Well, they had shot me on the shoulder. And, and then uh, at the end, wow, they, I felt the gun on, in the back of my head. And I felt it like that. Ida begins to slowly draw circles with her index finger on the sofa cushion. I was like, oh, I wish this guy would just shoot me, you know, get it over and done with, because he just kept, like, teasing me, like. So then he shot me. And it was the loudest noise I ever heard. The details are truly horrific. Ida was shot three times, including in the back of the head. The pair of gunmen shot the other six hostages multiple times execution style. That includes 26-year-old Steve Teran, 34-year-old Stephanie Sinak, and the children, Stephanie's daughter, Melissa Repass, Melissa's friend, 13-year-old Amy Hauser, and Steve's daughters, Valerie and Paula, just two and six years old, one of the most disturbing details, all the victims, including the youngest, were shot in the head. Steve, Valerie, Paula, and Amy were all killed. The robbers, now murderers, lit a fire to destroy evidence before fleeing. The photos of the crime scene show pandemonium. The office clearly ransacked. Pools of blood on the floor of the office and inside the bowling alley. A torched desk and burned papers scattered haphazardly across it and the floor. Melissa, just 12 years old, managed to call 911. Here's that call. Emergency. Please help me. Oh, well, slow down, slow down. We were all shot and hold up. 
Okay. Where are you at? Melissa survived. 
Melissa's mom, Stephanie, also lived, but ended up dying in 1999 from complications related to her injuries. Police ruled her death a homicide. Ida still says she isn't sure how she herself survived. I saw a big tunnel and I was going like a thousand miles an hour. I was going so fast and I was going in circles and all I saw was a black, something black. And, and I didn't know how to hold on and I was going so fast and then all of a sudden I just came back. The next thing I heard was somebody asking me, what's your name? And I, I was like, I'm alive. I must be alive because somebody just asked me my name. I was so happy. It was rough. It was, it was a hard thing to see. I mean, the smoke-filled uh, bodies uh, wasn't good. vicious crime that ended the lives of Stephanie Sinak, Stephen Teran, and his young daughters Valerie Teran and Paula Olguin has marred the memories of its longtime residents, including the police chief at the time, Ron Axtell. Every year, you know, they, the thing comes up and it's all over the media and everywhere. I don't sleep for three or four days and I didn't sleep last night. <laughs> but... Uh, I can't read, I can't forget that. Axtell doesn't normally talk to reporters about the case because he is still deeply troubled by its details. But he finally opened up to me about what he remembers. The morning of February 10th, he gets a call to go to the bowling alley while he's grocery shopping. I went to the bowling alley and one of my officers was met me out front, cars all over the place. He says, Chief, you're not gonna like this one. And I says, why is that? And he said, children. <laughs> that bothers me. I saw bodies and I was, <laughs> it, was it was tough. Who shoots a two and a half year old child behind the head? and walks away. Who does that? That's cruel. That's awful. Axtell said the Las Cruces police detective who was assigned to the case at the beginning, Fred Rubio, has since died. But Axtell told me some of what Rubio did to try to get to the bottom of the case. We had this town sealed up immediately from what I was told because it was a slow time of the day. It was early morning hours. And we had the Border Patrol, the State Police, everybody helps out when something like And we had these, this town was sealed up. And Rubio worked, he worked himself to death to get that thing on that national wanted dead or alive or whatever it was. He, he, he was constantly on the phone browbeating people into getting that on the national news. 
and he worked very hard at that. So it, it wasn't like it wasn't known, it was very well known. The police sketches composed from the eyewitness descriptions of the suspects were prominently featured in local and national news. The initial drawings were made almost two weeks after the shooting happened. First it started off that the two culprits were black. And then it changed uh, maybe maybe Asian or Cuban or something. And then finally they wound up with Hispanic, dark Hispanic. One of the sketches depicts a man who looks to be in his late 20s to early 30s, with dark angled brows, full lips, and a thick mustache. Dark hair, cut short around his ears, but longer in the back. The second man looked older, late 40s to early 50s, with hair that appeared to be longer, combed away from his face to reveal a lined forehead, a heavy brow, and lines around his mouth. Despite the sketches and the reward for information, despite the town lockdown and the national exposure, the trail went cold. The days and months stretched on without resolution to the Bowling Alley Massacre. Every year, for 30 years, local and regional media, including KVIA, ABC7, and neighboring El Paso, revisited the case. It's known as one of the bloodiest mass shootings in the state of New Mexico. According to police, two men walked into the Las Cruces Bowling Alley and shot seven people. Victims and their families continued to plead for information that could solve the case including Anthony Teran, who lost his brother Stephen and his nieces Valerie and Paula in the massacre. He spoke to ABC7 in 2014, ahead of the anniversary. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a sickness. This is two people who went out there and purposefully took the lives of my family. We say closure, but it never will be a closure. But to bring some kind of um, you know, resolution to this tragedy that even though these, they were taken, they, weren't, they were taken by somebody else's hand. The Las Cruces Police Department continued to scrutinize evidence. Every few years, a new detective was assigned to head up the investigation. Each brought a new set of eyes. And for now-retired Detective Mark Myers, personal memories of the case. I was in college when it happened. I was a senior in college, and... Uh just working, going to school. Um, felt pretty weird at the time because you didn't ever expect something like that to happen here. Myers joined the force about a year and a half after the massacre. You know, we kind of worked under the shadow of the, the bowling alley for my whole career. During our interview, Myers constantly shifted in his chair and rubbed his bald head. He told me later 
talking about the massacre bothers him, and I could feel the tension as we talked. About 10 years after the crime occurred, he asked to oversee the case. Yeah, that was, uh, it was kind of daunting, right? So even I wasn't really prepared for how much information there was. I mean, there were just boxes already, so it, it took me a long time to get through all the information. Myers told me he was sure he would be the one to solve it. You know, I was probably kind of cocky and a little arrogant at the time. And I, when I when I got it, I, requ I really requested it because I thought I had a pretty good lead from an informant. That, um, so I requested it, and I was pretty cocky, and I was pretty sure that information was good. He thought he had a hot lead. I had arrested a guy from northern New Mexico, and uh, he gave up a name of a guy who he said was the older, the older uh, assailant, and so and gave some some detail about what they did and what you know. And so it seemed pretty good, and when I pulled the guy's mugshot, I mean, he was a dead ringer for the, for the older composite, so I kind of uh, ran with it and went through all the information and read, read the case books and looked over all the evidence before I really went after the guy. And of course, it didn't pan out. And what happened? How come it didn't pan out? He had... He had uh, died in a car wreck before the bowling alley, a couple weeks before the bowling alley even occurred. Once that lead fizzled out, Detective Myers said he started all over. He went back to the evidence and reanalyzed everything. The folks that worked it prior to me, they, I mean, they didn't really leave any stone unturned. They, every lead that came in got investigated. Um, I didn't even go, you know, when I went back through and reread everything, there were a couple of people I went back and interviewed, but not because they hadn't been interviewed. Um, I re-interviewed some folks just hoping that with time maybe they remembered something else or maybe they would have a change of heart if they knew more than what they were telling, but there, there was nothing that, that wasn't done. From what I've learned in my years talking to police, detectives don't form a theory about what happened. They let evidence tell the story. You know, I tried to just stick to what we knew. We knew we had a robbery homicide. Myers used the evidence to create a profile of who was likely responsible. I did believe it was someone from the community because to know, you know, at the time there wasn't a lot to do here. You know, you could go to the movies. You could go bowling. I think there was a skating rink still. I mean, there just wasn't a lot to do. And you could go to the bar. And, you know, and the best of both worlds, right? You hit it on a Saturday morning, you know that it's a popular place. There's a bowling alley and a bar. And so they, they probably knew that there'd be a decent amount of money there. And he took that profile a step further based on the sketches and the witness accounts of what went on in the office before the massacre. Listen to what he thinks came of at least one of the suspects. 
I think that, uh, honestly, I think that at this point, looking back on it, I think, I'm guessing, of course, but uh, I imagine that one or both of those individuals, at least one for sure, was either killed or passed away or because I just can't believe that more than one person being involved in something like that, that they would keep that kind of secret or only talk to the people that would keep that kind of secret. So you think at least one of them is still alive, but maybe in prison for something No, else? I, don't, I don't know. I mean, if you think about the older guy who was described as being in his 50s, you know, if he's still alive, he'd be 80-something. If I were to guess, if I were a betting man, I would, I would say neither one of them are alive at this point. Myers retired from the Las Cruces Police Department in 2012, more than a decade after taking on the investigation and no closer to solving it. How do you feel knowing that you came in with such hope and optimism about solving this case and yet it's still unsolved? Yeah, no, it sucks. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any other word that you could air to describe it. It sucks, you know. I, you know, it's something you want so bad, and to have worked it for so long, and and to really, I don't know. It's just it, it almost. Yeah, I don't know. Just kind of makes you your career almost incomplete to a point because you don't want to walk away from it. And he admitted that, in a way, for a time, he didn't completely walk away. I took a job with corrections and we ended up doing a, a big uh, case on one of the prison gangs. So I even used that as an avenue to try to garner new information, come up with some new leads. and. Time hasn't lessened the importance of solving the case in the eyes of the Las Cruces Police Department. Each passing year brought a reemergence of the case in the news. We're still encouraging the public. If you know anything, if you have any idea who may be responsible for committing that terrible crime 26 years ago, please call detectives. With victims and their families continuing to share their pain with everyone and asking for closure, even Melissa Repass, in a rare appearance, 
opened up in this interview with CNN back in 2011. They told me to put my head down. And then, I, then they started shooting. In 2015, on the 25th anniversary of the crime, police released updated sketches of the suspects to reflect how they may have aged. They showed the two men with the same blank stares, but with receding hairlines and more prominent wrinkles on their foreheads. Since 2016, Detective Amador Martinez has been heading up the investigation. Stylistically, uh, I'm more of a forensic uh, type of detective. I believe strongly that there's some piece of evidence that's going to break this open. We spoke to Detective Martinez inside a conference room at the Las Cruces Police Department headquarters. He brought along a large brown accordion file, two four-inch three-ring binders, and a long manila envelope filled with photo negatives. He began to spread out on the conference table a sampling of the evidence that has been collected over the last 30 years. These are some of the items that uh, I've come across in the case file for the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. Um, there's some original renderings, some photographs of the scene itself, um, some copies or reprints of fingerprints that we've gone through. Lots of fingerprints, images of the burned office inside of the bowling alley, and photographs of footprints in the dirt outside. Martinez said it's just a fraction of the evidence in the case. When he took the lead, he did what his predecessors had done. Martinez sent evidence to the lab in Santa Fe to be reevaluated with advanced forensic technology. But I also kind of brought in my twist on things. So I sent up some stuff that hadn't been sent before for DNA evaluation. Um, I've sent up some fingerprints um, that were never um, evaluated because, I mean, on the off chance that something may, may come across it. Um, so I've done some things different than my predecessors, but I think along the lines, uh, we are all kind of forensic based and realize that something amongst what we have is going to tell us what happened. I've done some other interviews. Um, outside of the original uh, victims and victims' families. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be allowed to travel to other states to make, uh, or to make contact with individuals who were either suspects or witnesses. Uh, I've utilized outside agencies. A lot of the federal agencies uh, are willing to help, um, so I've reached out to them for help as well. Do you feel like you've made progress in the case? Do you feel like you've uncovered new evidence that hadn't been uncovered over the last 30 years? We can't quite divulge that. Uh, it's not privy to the public just quite yet, uh, but we are making steps and strides in the right direction.
We live in a time when updated forensic technology is helping crack cold cases of all ages. So it's easy for those of us on the outside of the investigation to speculate about how the case was handled both in the past and the present. Detective Amador Martinez knows there are questions. You know, why? What's taking so long? Um, I read a blurb um, in an article one time where uh, one of the family members was saying cases like this, you know, they don't go unsolved. So what's, what's the holdup? What's the problem? That's what Steve Tadon's brother Anthony told ABC7 in an interview in 2017. We are in this situation 27 years later is unbelievable. In a small town like Las Cruces, uh, where people know everybody, uh, with uh, children being killed out there, how can this still be unsolved 27 years later? I mean, I wish I had the answer to that, but at this time I don't. Former Chief Ron Axtell pointed out the main roadblock. Are there no identifiable fingerprints or, or... Well, you have to understand that in most crime scenes of this nature that the first responders, whether they be police, fire, or whoever, probably damage potential evidence when they're getting in there to save lives or put out fires or whatever they're doing, and I'm sure some of that happened. I think a fire extinguisher were used to put the fire out. They'd set the fire in the office or something, and, and uh, so damage was done to anything there. Detective Martinez said something I found pretty astounding. Even though the robbery and murders were carried out in the bowling alley office, detectives in 1990 collected fingerprints from the entire bowling alley inside and out. So some of the fingerprints that we've processed come back to just regular bowlers um, or people that were there for the daycare or, or people that were there just, just because they were there. Some of the fingerprints come from uh, bottles that were in an alleyway. Some come from doorways that weren't used in the back. Uh, some come from um, the kitchen where the suspects may or may not have been in. But Martinez was hesitant to fault the initial investigators for not closing the case. So it wouldn't be fair. I, I wouldn't criticize and say anything to the negative of that. Um, my approach is I have what I have. There's nothing I can do or change to, to make it any better or worse. Former detective Mark Myers was more willing to offer a critique of how the crime was assessed at the beginning. I think it was hard for everybody to wrap their arms around the fact that someone just on a you know regular robbery would go in and kill, shoot five people, you know, seven people, and it was hard for them to wrap their arms around. And, and I think if anything was kind of an obstruction to the investigation, it was just that that. It felt too big for this little community to just be a robbery homicide. And so instead of starting at, hey, this is a robbery homicide and working their way up, the theories started with that kind of, you know, it's got to be bigger. It's got to have something to do with some kind of drug debt or some kind of drug organization or some kind of organized crime. And, it, and you know, that's where it, that's where it, 
the investigation started and I think that was a little bit of the disconnect from the beginning of the investigation. Myers also made a comment that Fred Rubio, the lead investigator in 1990, while very capable and with ample resources, was, quote, overwhelmed. They waited another eight to ten hours or something like that before they ever even started processing the scene, canvassing, doing anything because they wanted to wait for the, the state crime lab to get down here and they wanted them to process, process the scene. Ida Ulguin doesn't tiptoe around her frustrations with the case going unsolved for so long. Uh, I get so angry and sometimes we'll be sitting down and uh, I, I tell my honey. Her honey is Ray Olguin. They were married when she was shot, but are now divorced. Despite their split, they remain friends, and she credits him with helping her recover. In fact, he was there at her apartment, sitting at her side during this interview. You know, I wish I knew his face, or who shot me. I get... I, and I've been doing this for more this year. Like I really, I, I tell him, I wanna know, I wanna know. Like, ah, oh, another year can't pass by and me not knowing who it was. Do they really have the case open? That's all I wanna know. Do they really? Who is working on it? When do they get tips? What tips? All of that I wish I could know. Mm -hmm. Instead of just wander every day, just wander. Ida says the last time she spoke to police about the crime was 10 years ago. I don't hear anything about it. I wish I, they would contact me, call me. Um, but no, I don't hear from them. I felt nobody believed me. Mm -mm. Why did you get that impression that they didn't believe you? Uh, because I was a cook. I was just a cook. Her frustration likely stemming from her struggle to put the pieces of her life back together. She's considered 100% disabled. She had to relearn basic skills, like how to use a water fountain shortly after the shooting. I walked up to one and um, I didn't know how to turn it on. And she hasn't overcome the traumatic injuries that can't be repaired with surgery. Ida looks fine, and she says that's the problem. She's been questioned about why she requires a disabled placard on her vehicle. It's come up so often, she carries evidence of her disability. An old photo taken shortly after surgery to repair the gunshot wound to her head. The picture is of the back of her shaved head, showing a massive stitched scar stretching from the crown of her head nearly to the top of her neck. My head hurts a lot. I got headaches every day. Every, every day. Every night, every morning I get up with headaches. Uh, I used to, uh, I used to sleep on the couch 
and I stayed on the couch like I would just get up and go to the bathroom but everything else I'd just be laying down laying down laying down all my kids were like you know they were growing up and see me on the couch and that was sad and I wish I could still be doing that but I, I go places I go here there and then come right back I'll go somewhere and then I want to come home just take me home we'll go to a restaurant I love McDonald's and uh, I panic I guess I'll never feel safe, ever. I'll never feel safe. Ida is getting ready to leave town to visit her sister. She's been doing it for years since the massacre. She tells me she can't stand to be in her hometown around the anniversary. I'd say I've had more bad times than good days. Um, because no matter where I go, what we're doing, I'll have a good time, but it's in back, it's back here. Always looking around, always looking around, and that just, it's tiring. Many of us will never forget what happened inside a Las Cruces bowling alley. Two gunmen shot seven people in the head. They called it the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. A documentary profiling the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre was released in theaters around the 20th anniversary of the case in 2010. The filmmaker, Charlie Min, focused on speculation swirling around town that the bowling alley owner, Ron Sinak, was tied to the murderers, alleging he and his sons had connections to drugs and cartels. We're pleading for assistance from the public. Remember, Sinak's daughter Stephanie and granddaughter Melissa were both shot during the attack, and Stephanie has since died. Ida tells me she had suspected something similar about the Sinaks. Obviously, it had to have been drug-related. It had to have been. It couldn't have been anything else because um, they went and looked for the money. I would see a lot of people in and out from his office. and It just seemed everything was like, of course, I just did my job, you know. Senak no longer lives in Las Cruces. The last time he spoke to ABC7, around 2010, he was 75 and living in Mississippi. Here's what he told our reporter about his involvement with the case. I would go to the police station every morning and ask him, what's the latest, what's the deal? Every morning I stopped there. Every day. The people can believe what they want to believe. And there's nothing I can say that's going to change their mind. Former Detective Mark Myers says the rumors about the Cenax were vetted. Absolutely. I mean, that was a theory from the beginning. I mean, but I'll tell you what, it was also one of the most investigated aspects of the case. You know, the, I can tell you that, I mean, they went through all the finances, all the associates, and they could just never come up with a legitimate connection between Ron and the, and the murders. Myers points out 
CNAC was defensive, but cooperated with the investigation. To be fair as well, I mean, there is, there's no absolutes in this thing. So could there be a nexus between him that was just never discovered? Maybe. But I wouldn't know with all my experience how to, how to get there because, I mean, all the channels were, I mean, I don't want, but I also don't want to sit here and say, hey, there's absolutely no way on earth Ron Sinek could have been a motive for why these people were killed. I wouldn't say that either. And I asked Detective Amador Martinez about the rumors and whether CNAC is ruled out of the investigation. So on, on that question, uh, I wish I could answer, but I, I can't. That's information we haven't quite concluded yet. We, we don't have the answer to that yet. When will we have the answers? It's the question that even after 30 years, police are working to resolve. And no one seems to be giving up hope that the answers will one day be known, not Detectives Martinez and Myers, Chief Axtell, or Anthony and Ida, that the missing information just simply has to get to authorities. I am a firm believer that somebody out there knows something about this. Somebody holds a piece that will allow us to crack, crack this case. I mean, if there's anybody out there still that knows anything about it, I would, as always, beg them to come forward. I mean, the amount of devastation that incident caused to the city, to the families involved, it's, it's unimaginable and, and it needs to be reconciled. I think that all things will be solved someday. You know, I've seen so many things happen that came was solved many years later. And I think that this will be solved somehow. It may not be done here on Earth, but it'll be solved. Having to go through this and drag it out year after year, day after day, it's, it's very frustrating to still be at square one 30 years later. If we could just have a name and a face, and if they know for a fact that they are dead, to let us know. I mean, if they have proofs, because a lot of people have said this and that and that, but they never have proofs. If they're gonna say they know who they are, um, come up with a name, Tell us the name, where they're at, if they know, and just bring a lot of evidence, proofs, so we can rest. Las Cruces police announced the week before the 30th anniversary that they are increasing the reward for information that helps identify the men responsible for the massacre. It's now at $30,000. Any information, anything no matter how seemingly insignificant, you're asked to call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 8477.
thank you to Ida Ulin, a woman who has suffered much, yet finds value in sharing her horrific story in hopes that it leads to closure. Thank you to the Las Cruces Police Department for their help with this podcast, including spokesman Dan Trujillo and Detective Amador Martinez. Thanks to former police chief Ron Axtell for inviting me into his home to discuss the tragedy, something he doesn't often do. And thank you to former Detective Mark Myers for offering his insight into the case, despite his discomfort in doing so. This has been Borderland Crimes, a podcast brought to you by KVIA-TV ABC7. It was written, produced, and edited by me, Stephanie Valle. It was co-produced by Tom Scott, the ABC7 New Mexico News Operations Manager. Tom was already a working journalist the day of the massacre and has touched base with victims and their families and detectives year after year since then. Tom is also the audio engineer for this podcast, along with Special Projects Director John McMinn and Operations Manager Chris Swan. Our news director is Brenda Deanda Swan. Over the last 30 years, it has been the mission of KVIA to keep a spotlight on this case in hopes that someone will come forward with information to solve it. One of those people is Kevin Lovell, who is KVIA's general manager. He was the weekend assignments editor the morning the call came into the newsroom about the terrifying crime unfolding in Las Cruces. Stay tuned. Another episode of Borderland Crimes is coming soon.